Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we chatted with a leading mayoral candidate, learned about the economy of sex work, and discussed Chicago's rich literary history. All this plus size matters in the Trump Diaries, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for January 18th, 2019. Mario Smith spoke with Bob Fioretti, one of the many mayoral candidates Lumpen Radio is speaking to this year. Fioretti discussed his tenure in city council, combating the violence in our city, and the need for mental health services. News from the service entrance with Mario Smith airs every Thursday at 2 p.m. Mr. Bob Fioretti is in the studio. Hello, sir. Good to be here. Thanks. It's good to see you yes. up close. This is cool. Yes. Nice, nice. Um, I happened to yesterday... Uh, watch the Tribune editorial board's uh, series of mayoral candidates that they, they step in front of the editorial board and explain why they should be mayor of Chicago. Um, so in, in lieu of the fact that I'm not a publishing tycoon or, or a newspaper baron, let me ask you, why do you think people should vote for you? Well, I have a vision for the city, uh, and my vision encompasses everybody. You know, I ran for... Alderman way back when in 06. I read something in the uh, Tribune, as a matter of fact, I think it was, uh, about every six out of every 100 African-American kids that graduate through CPS go to college. I thought that was unacceptable. It, it actually made me angry. And I, I said, uh, I lived half a block away from Whitney Young, mm-hmm. but I, you can look down my street. I'm on Jackson, uh, about five blocks away. I see Crane High School, uh, one of the best in the, in the country and one of the those that are more underserved. I said, we can do better. So I ran for mayor. I, I ran for alderman. And... What happened was I I found out that I lived in the most diverse ward in the city of Chicago. The second ward was historically African-American since 1915. I was 76% black. I won that ward. Mm -hmm. I won uh, the race. And uh, uh, I've tried to fight for the the people ever since, an all-inclusive policy, uh, practicing diversity, putting people first, uh, and really representing the working class people of this city, and I've always done that in my law practice, and uh, I continue to do that today. When we look at the city and, and the, the myriad concerns of the people who live in it, among those, public safety is, if not the top, it's it's 1A. Um, what is your public safety plan? Well, you know, everybody's been talking, first of all, every reform idea that anybody has talked about, I've raised in the last 10 years since I've been in public life. I've raised each and every one of them. Uh, and the problem has been half of these people have either criticized me publicly and now all of a sudden they found the error of their ways or they sat on the sidelines and uh, quietly uh, not doing anything. You know, yes, I voted against uh, six out of the eight times I voted on budgets uh, budgets, and they were bad, bloated budgets, but some were, let's have more police on the streets. Let's have uh, more detectives. Let's ha- open up our mental health clinics. Uh, at the same time, I... I I have used 
the holistic approach before. At Crane, uh, I had more high schools than any other ward, but at Crane, mm-hmm. we had a young uh, man that was killed about a half a block away. Uh, and we, the, the attendance level at Crane was always low in the low 70s. It dropped down to the 30s. I went door to door to every house uh, that we had kids that should be going to school, knocked on their doors. We created after-school programs. I started in the architect of Operation Safe Passage, which is now used across the city. Mm-hmm. At the same time, we brought in uh, mental health experts in, in and around the community. Uh, together, we worked to solve the problems. Our, our uh, kids went back to school uh, close to 80-some percent at that point. That was beyond 80-some percent. Uh, we, we were solving problems. And that's part of the reason I, was, I ran for alderman, and it's, part, it's the reason I run for mayor, to solve the problems. You know, right now, the, f- the first of last year alone, uh, those that were shot in this city uh, cost taxpayers $165 million dollars. Think about that number. That's not even the long-term cost. That's not the cost of the police, the state's attorney, if they finally find somebody that's involved in a shooting. I mean, we need to drive those numbers down to put it into our communities to invest. I've always said, and don't forget, as I said, as uh, the most uh, diverse ward. Whatever they wanted in the downtown area, I brought to the west side. I brought into my Bronzeville community, East Garfield Park, and, and did things to, uh, to bring jobs. And I've always had job fairs for ex-offenders, for veterans, and for people in my community. And I, I think I know the pathway of bringing the violence down. And, and with that being said, we've had probably the most tumultuous period involving Chicago police and citizens that we've ever had, um, culminating in the in the death of Laquan McDonald. And depending on who you ask, the continuing uh, push, it would seem, to try to... Uh, uh, to try to... I'm trying to think of a delicate way of saying this without saying what I would say if the mics weren't on, of, of uh, corruption within the Chicago Police Department. Um, as a as a person who has been in that in that that area where where a lot of these things have been happening, um, it, it, it is your first day of mayor. Let's just say you say that that day I'm going to do something about the Chicago Police. Where would you start? And and with considering as well the federal mandate that has been given to the Chicago Police to change. Um, what's your plan for the police? Well, first of all, uh, I it's. It took me two and a half years uh, to get the ordinance that reformed the police board uh, to make sure that they show up at meetings, mm-hmm. to make sure they had good pub- public com- comments, to to put on um, the website yeah, uh, the discipline of a officer. Uh, some people, you could have been accused of one uh, one issue, uh, personnel issue, you could have been accused of another one, and the disparate uh, punishments make no sense at all. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to uniform that. It took me two and a half years to get that done because everybody fought me in the city council, but we had to bring our police board 
into a reform situation. Uh, unfortunately, you know, I hear about two of the candidates, they say they're the only ones that have ever been involved in law enforcement. Well, that's not true. I was a civil rights lawyer. I fought for what needed to be done in our communities, and I will continue to fight. It doesn't matter who you are, what zip code you're from, what color you are. What's bothering me about this race is all of a sudden some of the candidates are talking black and brown versus white, black versus white, uh, brown versus uh, black. Wait a minute. We have to come together. It's not. It's a matter of what's right and wrong. You know, the corruption in the police department. We have the consent decree, whether you like it or not. And I'll tell you, I'm not a favor of consent decrees. Mm-hmm. Uh, I view this consent decree of lack of leadership in the police department. Where does it start? It starts with people like Eddie Johnson. It starts like people uh, like McCarthy, who's now running for mayor. I mean, he should have been, if anybody reads the consent decree, And it's about 225 uh, pages. Mm -hmm. And every citizen in this city should have a copy of it and read it because it's not... It's not so onerous on our department. It's actually things that if we were doing it before, and when I was in Harold Washington's administration as a lawyer, I know I rewrote some of the general orders. I I, uh, was once in a while asked to speak at the academy on the use of force. Uh, The things that we are dealing with now, if we would have had a professional head of our police department, we would not be having the problems today. It's as simple as that. But everybody should read through the consent decree understand it, ask questions, and I think we can move forward. There are people who will read we should reduce the number of aldermen in the city council as my voice won't be heard if I live in a particular ward and that 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 ward gets taken out of the council. What is the what are your pros and cons for wanting to reduce the amount of council members well i i've always been in favor of it Mm. uh first of all i you know i'm not sure whose voice is it may be the few that talk to the alderman uh it's embarrassing when you look at what happens right now you go to the city council meeting i haven't been to one since i left but i went on december 12th to listen to rom's uh pension Mm -hmm. uh how he was going to deal with it well, we, you know, a lot of the people out there fought. They filed a lawsuit to be heard to have some uh, public comment. When the public comment started, the mayor walked out. About a third of the city council walked out. The rest were on their phones uh, doing it. Three or four listened, but it was embarrassing. If I was mayor, I'd make sure everybody sat there and listened to the comments because if you don't listen to the people, then you're lost. Uh, When I'm mayor, I'm going to have town hall meetings on the budget, but I'm going to go and have a ward night and I'll go through all 50 wards and have the people of that ward appear in front and let's talk, find out what their issues. I'll sit with them one by one as long as it takes with my cabinet to understand the pro- to make sure we solve the problems. And yes, I want a smaller city council. LA has, which is twice the size of Chicago, 15 uh, people. Uh, Houston, which is right on, on our tail, uh, has 16. Uh, 10 are elected in wards and six are elected at large. Uh, all the top 10 cities except for Chicago and Philadelphia have term limits. I've been saying that from day one. I've been saying these things from day one. Term uh, limits for everybody? Term limits for everybody. Mayor and, and alderman. Mayor, uh, yes, and alderman and all municipal uh, municipal offices. <laughs> 
Después de eso que tenías que hacer Habrá mil cosas nuevas que vas a querer hacer Tocar, sentir, romper y conocer No es tan terrible enfrentarnos a los solos que estamos This is Hell spoke with Molly Smith about the work, the politics, and the economy of sex work. Is sex work a feminist profession, or is it another way the patriarchy keeps women marginalized? Find out with Chuck Mertz every Sunday at 10 a.m. Prostitutes are fighting for their rights, and they've been fighting for their rights a lot longer than you think. The problem is, too often, people working as prostitutes are rarely asked their opinion on sex work, leading to it being criminalized and sex workers in contact with their greatest security risk, the police. Here to help us understand the sex worker rights movement and why their fight for safety and improved economic conditions is so important for all civil rights movements, Molly Smith is co-author with Juno Mack of Revolting Prostitutes, The Fight for Sex Workers' Rights. Welcome to This Is Hell, Molly. Hi. Hi, Chuck. Thanks for having me on. Molly is a sex worker and activist with the Sex Worker Advocacy and Resistance Movement. You can find out more about SWARM, which is what the movement is known as, by visiting swarmcollective.org. She's also involved with Scott Pep, a sex worker-led charity based in Edinburgh, Edinburgh, which is working to decriminalize sex work in Scotland. You can find out more about Scott Pep by visiting scot-pep.org.uk. And you can follow Molly on Twitter at Pasta Chips, where she describes herself as a tired prostitute, communist, and feminist. I love that <laughs> description. That is really fantastic. So let me just start with Thank this, you. because I'm never certain, because I've talked with a lot of sex workers on our show what is the better term to use, prostitution or sex work? Does it make any difference? Oh, uh, good question. Um, it's complicated. I think, um, in general, people prefer sex work because it um, speaks to sex work as work, and it's obviously like you know a strong political statement and choice to like uh, situate uh, prostitution as labour in that way. Um, that being said, obviously, when Juno and I uh, decided to name our book Revolting Prostitutes, we were very much kind of looking to reclaim um, the term prostitute, which we both um, have had a bit of a journey with over the years. We're initially um, really hating it and feeling like it was always an insult. And uh, as we've kind of grown, um, we've both come to quite enjoy it and to feel that it um that it actually has a kind of value of its own um so yeah it's complicated (laughs) (laughs) you start the book uh with a quote from author and new yorker staff writer ariel levy Uh, saying the women who are really being emulated and obsessed over in our culture now, strippers, porn stars, pinups, aren't even people. They are merely sexual uh, persona, erotic dollies from the land of make-believe. And their performance and performances, which is the only capacity in which we uh, see these women, we so fetishize, they don't even speak. As far as we know, they have no ideas, no feelings, no political beliefs, no relationships, no past, no future, no humanity. Uh Why do we view the women we emulate and obsess over 
as without humanity. What does that say about us? Is that, is that contradictory that we obsess and emulate them, but we view them without humanity, or is that just uh, consistent within misogyny? Mm, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think I feel like that's it's partly misogyny, right? And also, I think Ariel Levy's book uh, was more talking, to be fair to her, about kind of. Um, women who are like quite famous that like glamour models and porn actresses etc um but when we were uh reading around for, but obviously she's talking about sex workers as glamour models and porn actresses are um and when we were reading around for the book we were just so struck by the you know the stuff where she's like no no past no no politics no um you know no life of their own or whatever um yeah, just because, yeah, it, I don't know, it, it, it really epitomizes how, I guess, um, anti-prostitution feminist writers uh, can sort of think that what they're doing is describing patriarchy, but actually what they're doing is also perpetuating it, you know, because she's also saying, like, it's easy to read that as her kind of saying those things about women who sell sex or who sell sexuality in some way in public, Um yeah. Well, why do you think it is? What explains why we don't give voice to sex workers, even when the subject is sex work? It doesn't really seem to make sense. It's like talking to, you know, a uh, Klansman about uh, rights for African-Americans. It doesn't really make sense to you. What explains why why we don't give voice to sex workers, even when that's the subject? Right. I mean, I guess, like, you know, being someone who is known to sell sex is very, you know, discrediting because, um, and it's sort of, it's sort of um, hard to tell which comes first, the stigma against prostitutes uh, versus the sense that prostitutes are drawn from populations um, who our society already, you know, stigmatizes and discredits. So, you know, women, LGBTQ people, people of color, drug users, undocumented migrants you know sex workers are disproportionately drawn from all these groups and of course people with multiple uh, identities that overlap within those groups um and and then and then sex work in itself becomes another reason to dismiss uh to dismiss them um so yeah it's kind of this like vicious circle a really vicious circle um so is the sex is the reason that the sex workers movement that it's not already included within other radical social justice movements is it is it simply that this is seen as a practical pragmatic political move by human rights groups so as not to associate with sex workers but because it could be unpopular and if that is the case what does that say about the human rights movement, about the social justice movement today, if they're making practical, pragmatic decisions not to include sex workers within their fight for rights? Yeah, I think it is partly that. Um, I remember a couple of years ago, um, a city in Scotland was running uh, an event for um, World HIV Day, World AIDS Day, and they invited Scott Pett, one of the sex work organizations that I'm involved with, um, to like potentially come along and maybe maybe have the opportunity to speak, um, but they also like very um, uh, very kind of contradictorily were very anxious that we like to know exactly how we were going to talk about sex work and were we going to talk about sex work and were we going to be seen as promoting sex work and all this kind of stuff and it was just like so 
so bizarre that the HIV movement, which um, you know is is so linked in many ways to the struggles across future rights, was was has become like was was so gentrified in this Scottish city that like and so kind of managerial and kind of NGO NGOified that the idea of like they they sort of felt they had to invite prostitutes but they also felt incredibly anxious about it and like really were like you can't talk about sex work. <laughs> um but yeah I mean I think in terms of like the wider left um the uh, the issue of prostitution um, kind of understandably raises really strong feelings. Um, you know, as we write in the book, really kind of sex is complicated and work is bad. And um, people often kind of, it's like it's like where they would be critical of cops on other issues. People often think, oh my God, prostitution is so bad. It's so horrible. Um, you know, more policing must fix this. Um and that even you get that even in quite like left wing radical spaces. So kind of a big um a big struggle for sex workers uh, on the left is to try and get other um kind of leftist organizers to understand that when we're saying, you know, the police harm us and what we need are, you know, rights and justice that isn't dependent on policing. Um, that we're not making kind of somehow kind of quite like neoliberal demands. So like sex workers are often caricatured as like somehow being supportive of the market or supportive of capitalism when we're saying we want workers' rights, we want economic justice, we want gender justice. Yeah, th- your book is fascinating. You, you write, many people want to stop us from selling sex or fix the world so we don't need to or just ensure they don't have to look at us. But we are notoriously hard to get rid of at least through criminal law. Can the world be, quote-unquote, fixed so sex work is no longer in demand? And, and, and how much does the belief that the world can be fixed so we don't need sex work lead to the criminalization of sex work, whether the believer supports cr- criminalization of sex work or not? Yeah, I mean, I think Juno and I both do think that the world can be fixed. Um, so that people largely don't have to sell sex anymore. Um, it's just that there is this kind of tendency um, to kind of like, yeah, to short circuit it or to, to reach for what feels like the easy option, which is policing. Um, but I think, you know, um, in the book, one of the things we come back to again and again is the idea that like if, you know, people sell sex to get the resources they need, if everybody had the resources they need, you know, a, a stable income, safe, secure housing, um, health care, you know, the right to work and have workers' rights and safety, uh, regardless of your immigration status, um, you know, access to the, to the drugs that you potentially need. Um, you know, if everyone had all those things, um, then they wouldn't have to sell sex in order to, in order to get them. Um, so, you know, in a sense, we both think that the sex industry actually can largely be abolished. We just don't think that they, that can be done by funding police departments uh, or funding um, border security. Um, I don't think that people realize to what degree uh, sex workers are policed. You ask, what are the consequences of calling the police or of being visible to them as a gaggle on the street? Uh, what does it mean for a sex worker when their client or manager is afraid of the police? Who is it? Uh, who is at risk of deportation and homelessness? And why, when it comes to policing of sex workers? 
So how much are sex workers police? Arrest for prostitution are rarely in the news. And there are those who have the impression that it is, you know, as police is something as minimal as uh, minimally criminal, like uh, smoking a joint in public and that you just get a ticket and a fine. And you're told to, you know, be on your way and that's it. So how aggressively is prostitution police as a, uh, policed as a sex worker who has witnessed this? Right. So that was my, definitely one of the things we really, you know, wanted to kind of use this space that we had in the book to talk about in a really granular way. Because obviously, you know, we talk about a load of different jurisdictions. So like in the US, for example, prostitution is much more aggressively policed than uh, in the UK. Um, and, you know, policed in different ways. You know, the policing of sex work manifests differently in Amsterdam, uh, you know, in Cape Town, in Moscow. Um and we wanted to have an opportunity to talk about all those different kinds of things. Um, I think obviously the first thing to say is that like the policing of sex work is uh, hugely dependent on who you are and particularly dependent on race. So white sex workers are not policed in any way the same extent as sex workers of colour or black sex workers. And that's the case regardless of jurisdiction all over the world. The policing of prostitution is used um, you know, as a tool of racism, as a tool of racist policing. Um, and again, like lots of different other kinds of factors make some sex workers much more vulnerable um, to really catastrophic policing. So uh, undocumented migration status, um, uh, being a mother means that you can potentially like, lose your children, um, all these kinds of things. Um, but also... Yeah, I think I think one of the other things that we really wanted to emphasize was um not only, you know, what kinds of um harms befall sex workers when we are, you know, targeted by the police or by the criminal legal system, um, but also the kinds of harms that befall sex workers uh when we have to take steps to avoid that targeting. So, you know, in the UK uh, it's legal for one sex worker to work alone in a flat. But if you work with a friend, uh, you can both be arrested and charged with brothel keeping the other. Um, so obviously that means that some people are arrested and charged with that every year. And that's disproportionately migrants in particular. The UK police like really strongly target migrant sex workers with that law. Um, but like it's not the harms of that law aren't just the people who are arrested and charged, although obviously they suffer a horrible, horrifying brunt of it. Uh, it's also that most, like, so many people have to work alone because they fear arrest. You know, and working alone makes sex workers obviously really vulnerable to violent clients. So we're constantly having to choose between fear of arrest versus fear of violent clients. <laughs> Test one, test two. Good night, sweetheart. Well, it's time to go. I hate to leave you, but I really like to drink. Well, good night, sweetheart. Good night. Hey, Trote. You bouncing for Maria's now? No. Valet. Hence the red jacket. Since when does Maria's have valet parking? Started about an hour ago. <laughs> I tell you, the Bridgeport facelift never ends, am I right? <laughs> well, hey, I'll let Kyle know I saw you. Yeah, he ain't in there. He'll be back in a minute. Well, I'll, I'll be waiting. Why don't you wait here for him? You smoke? No. Second hand? Pardon? 
Why don't you stick around and keep me company for a few uno momentos? All right, sure, for a few minutes, yeah. I bet you're wondering why I got a hook for our hand. Nope. You already told me. Episode 46. Is that right? Yep. Good memory, kid. Hey, you're a sharp guy. Want to make a few dollars? <laughs> All right, I, well, I got to ask, what's the gig? I have to leave my post to go number two. All you have to do is wear my jacket and stand here. All right, what if a car pulls up? If a car pulls up, take the key and give the driver a number. I'll move the car when I get back. Okay, but just don't be gone long. Here's my coat. <laughs> just don't be gone long, okay? I bet you're wondering how I clean myself with a hook for a hand. No, not at all. Just right. see you in a few. Be right back. <clears throat> to be accepted into the neighborhood, you must build trust and lend a hand. Good evening. Uh, hello, is this the best bar in the city? Yes, according to certain publications it is. Valet? Yes, that's fantastic. All right. Let me grab a... Uh, okay. All right, don't lose this. Be gentle with her. Man, this is a classic. It's the result of my achievements as a world-renowned food critic. Really? Who, who are you? Say nothing to no one, don't scratch my car, and you'll be tipped handsomely. Uh, you got it. Wow. This thing's Quick. like, what? Get in the car. You're uh, driving. Okay, all right. Pop the trunk. Pop, why? Why? What I say you do, you do. What the heck is going on here? We'll explain on the way. Yeah, drive to Palmasano Park. We'll explain. We're at Palmasano Park. I'm not too sure what Trout and Kyle... Hey, what's going on out there? Why are we stopped? What the... Who is that? I think they got someone in the trunk. Hold on, I'm coming. Guys, there's someone in the trunk. Yeah, we know it's PP. Hey, PP, how you doing? Hey, I'm good. Thanks for asking. Listen, guys, we got to get this car back to Maria's like right now. Sorry, no can do. This buggy is going to Undertown. You're stealing it? Technically, you already stole it. Kyle, talk. Ah, the only way to get back into Undertown is to bring no. a gift for the overlord. So we're going to bring him this car so he can scrap it. Okay, okay, okay. Now, think about how this whole car is going to fit into Undertown at all. This right here, the Stern's Quarry Fountain. What? What about it? It was reverse engineered into a door to Undertown. I mean, wh why do you guys even want to go back? This is on the down low. We're staging a resistance against Gary Indiana Jones. Pee-Pee is our man on the inside, and I'm going down there to bore a secret hole back to Bridgeport. Kyle, you've been banned from Undertown. What could you possibly do? My strategy is simple. As long as I stand 40 yards away from Gary Indiana Jones, I will go unseen. Why 40 yards? This prescription is only good for about 35 <sighs> yards. <laughs> Time to open the door. Come on, Kyle. Wow. I can't believe it just transforms like that. That's, in, that's insane. Concrete is the one thing the <laughs> engineers in Undertown totally understand. Yes, behold, it's amazing, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> Time to go, Kyle. Hop in the trunk. Ah, Not well. so fast. It's cold, manhole cover. What oh, do you no. want, you slob? Watch it, trope. Wait, they got you working security now? 
very observant for an old cuss, aren't we? You're working for Gary Indiana Jones now? Yeah. Even after he stole the election that you would have never in a million billion years won? Who said I didn't win? I know how to play ball. Yeah, big talk from a short stack of pancakes. Your travel status is restricted. If you so much as fart over the threshold of Undertown, you're mine. What about me? You're good. It's a sweet car. Gary's gonna love it. See you guys around. Now listen here. Nah, you listen to me. You ever. If, if you're and gonna I start mean... in like that. Oh, 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 wow. Give me a second. That's not good. Back it up. That's serious damage. Uh, go, go right just uh, a bit. Oh. Uh, that's. Oh. That's. Oh, man. Bad. I, I think he's gonna clear it. I don't know. Nope. Uh, yeah, that's not gonna work. No. Stand of Undertown, Sismaniski, or whatever. Wow. <laughs> nah, it looks like I'm stuck here. So why was PP in the trunk? Nah, no time to explain. We have to get back to Maria's pronto. Well, you go ahead. I, I don't think I can. Pretty sure I'm a car thief now. Most times when you let people borrow your car in Undertown or in Bridgeport, it's probably for something bad. Anyway, speaking of something bad, back to the guys over at Lumpin' Radio. This week on The Trump Diaries, in a bombshell, the FBI is investigating if Trump is a foreign agent working for Russia. The shutdown continues with no end in sight. Trump loses again and again in court, and Trump gives burgers to jocks. These are The Trump Diaries. Day 722, January 11th. Trump's former bagman Michael Cohen agreed to publicly testify in front of the House Oversight Committee. That move sets up a blockbuster spectacle reminding many of the testimony John Dean gave during Watergate. Cohen will answer questions from lawmakers about the Russia investigation. However, those answers will be heavily redacted so as not to interfere with the Mueller investigation. Cohen is slated to testify on February 2nd. The news sent Trump into a tweeting fury. Meanwhile, Steve Mnuchin testified about his decision to lift sanctions on companies linked to Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska. Mnuchin's testimony was immediately called not credible and a waste of time. He repeatedly ducked questions from lawmakers. Nancy Pelosi called the presentation, quote, one of the worst classified briefings we've received from the Trump administration. 800,000 federal employees missed their first paycheck due to the shutdown, which today became the longest ever. TSA employees have become staging sick outs, with one in eight staying away from airports, forcing security lanes to shut down. Federal crop payments have stopped going to farmers. Farmers also cannot get federally backed loans to buy seed for spring planting or feed for their livestock. The FDA also stopped inspecting the nation's food supply today. Trump wants to use a chunk of the Army's $13.9 billion disaster relief fund to pay for his border wall. However, that money is actually earmarked for Puerto Rico's storm recovery and other public works projects. Trump also denied today that he promised Mexico would, quote, write out a check for his border wall. That's false. Trump actually said that only 212 times over the last two years. Day 723, January 12th. 
In a bombshell revelation, the FBI is investigating if Trump is a Russian agent. Counterintelligence agents became so concerned over Trump's odd behavior toward Russia, they combined their inquiry with the special counsel investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election. It remains unclear if that investigation is still open and whether or not Trump is, of course, working for Russia. A federal judge blocked a Trump rule that would have allowed employers to avoid providing women with no-cost birth control. The judge limited the ruling to the 13 states that sued to block the rule, Illinois among them, but the ruling had the effect of freezing the plan nationwide. Iowa House Republican Steve King told The New York Times he doesn't understand why the phrases white nationalist and white supremacist, quote, have become offensive. King, a key Trump ally, also declared himself an American nationalist in the interview. And Trump's inaugural committee spent more than $100 million, including $1.5 million at the Trump International Hotel, $10,000 on makeup, $30,000 in very unusual per diem payments for contract staffers, and $2.7 million on Broadway-style rendition of Frank Sinatra's New York, New York, according to federally regulated filings. A single contractor received nearly $26 million. Outside experts said the money spent on an inaugural was absurd and raised questions if those funds were actually being laundered. And Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani told Fox he thinks Trump's legal team should be allowed to correct Robert Mueller's final report before anyone reads it. Giuliani made the absurd claim because, in his view, the special counsel could be wrong. Day 724, January 13th. Trump's anger and peril over reports he was being investigated as a Russian agent mushroomed over the weekend. In a normally friendly interview with Fox News' Janine Pirro, a longtime Trump sycophant, Trump was directly asked if he worked for Russia. He did not give a yes or no answer. In addition, multiple reports surfaced that said Trump had confiscated notes from his interpreter and banned transcripts of meetings with Vladimir Putin. The national security advisor Dan Coats had previously complained he had no idea what Trump and Putin had discussed in Helsinki. Meanwhile, Trump threatened to devastate Turkey economically if they hit Kurds in a Twitter message following the U.S. troop withdrawal in Syria. Turkish Foreign Minister Melva Kalsklu responded by saying his country was, quote, not going to be scared or frightened off. You will not get anywhere by threatening Turkey's economy. Trump reportedly sold $35 million worth of real estate in 2018, despite supposedly recusing himself from daily management of his companies. More than half of that came in a single deal involving a federally subsidized housing complex in Brooklyn. Trump and his business partners sold that for nearly $900 million. And Trump also tweeted bizarrely, quote, the fake news gets crazier and more dishonest every single day. Amazing to watch as certain people covering me and the tremendous success of this administration have truly gone mad. Their fake reporting creates anger and disunity. Take two weeks off and come back rested. Chill. Day 725, January 14th. The government shutdown, now the longest ever, continues with no end in sight. Public polling overwhelmingly shows that voters blame Trump and the Republican Party. Over the weekend, several major airports, including Denver, Atlanta, and D.C., had to close security lanes. Trump, however, reportedly believes the shutdown is a win for him. And Trump called the FBI officials who started an investigation into whether he was a Russian agent, quote, known scoundrels. I guess you could say they're dirty cops. Quote, I never worked for Russia, and you know that better than anybody. I never worked for Russia. Not only did I never work for Russia, I think it's a disgrace that you even asked that question because it's a whole big fat hoax. It's just a hoax. However, Trump also confirmed the investigation existed, complaining about the officials who started it. I guess they started it because I fired Comey, which is a great thing I did for our country. I've done a great service for our country when I fired James Comey because he was a bad cop and he was a dirty cop and he lied. Trump also added that he and Vladimir Putin had, quote, a very good meeting in Helsinki. That was a very good meeting. It was actually a very successful meeting. We have those meetings all the time. No big deal. 
Attorney General nominee William Barr said in prepared remarks to Congress, quote, I believe it is in the best interest of everyone, the President, Congress, and most importantly, the American people, that this matter be resolved by allowing the special counsel to complete his work. Barr added the public should be informed of the result of the special counsel's work. It is unclear if Barr, who is known to have an expansive view of executive power, can be confirmed. And Trump nominated a judge to replace Brett Kavanaugh, who described race as, quote, a hot money-making issue. Affirmative action is the anointed dragon of liberal excess. Welfare as being for the indigent and lazy. And lesbian and gay issues, quote, as part of trendy political movements. Naomi Rao, who currently serves as Trump's deregulatory czar, made the comments and writings attributed to her in college. Rao also said of date rape that, quote, if a woman drinks to the point where she can no longer choose, well, getting to that point was part of her choice. Rao has been nominated to the D.C. Circuit Court, known as the second most powerful court in America. Rao has also never been a judge. Day 726, January 15th. Trump has told advisors he wants to dissolve NATO and has sought repeatedly ways to leave the alliance, deepening suspicions he's a Russian agent. Current and former officials who support the alliance said they fear Trump could return to his threat as allied military spending continues to lag behind the 4% goals the president has set. Russia's main goal has been the collapse of NATO. Trump apparently regularly brings up his distaste of the alliance. And Trump has repeatedly asked his advisors to come up with a plan to seize Iraq's oil. While officials have explained exhaustively why the USA cannot simply take Iraqi oil, Trump apparently returns to that issue every few months. A federal judge blocked Trump from adding a question on American citizenship to the 2020 census. Trump has attempted to turn the census into a tool to advance Republican interests. However, in a lengthy and searing ruling, the judge said that Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross committed a veritable smorgasbord of violations of federal law. Ross, quote, failed to consider several important aspects of the problem, alternately ignored, cherry-picked, or badly misconstrued the evidence on the record before him, acted irrationally, and failed to justify significant departures from past policies and practices. Ross, of course, has been accused of being one of the greatest grifters in American history, a lengthy expose in Forbes all but called him a criminal. The FAA was forced to recall 3,600 employees who had been furloughed. The FAA said in a statement citing operations and safety, we have determined that after 30 weeks, we must recall inspectors and engineers. It is unclear where those employees' paychecks will come from. And Trump welcomed national champions Clemson to the White House, where he served them fast food. Explained Sarah Huckabee Sanders, quote, because the Democrats refused to negotiate on border security, much of the resident staff of the White House is furloughed, so the president is personally paying for the event to be catered with some of everyone's favorite fast foods. Trump was visibly delighted to give some of the top athletes in college sports McDonald's. Trump claimed he bought 1,000 hamburgers for the athletes. He did not. He actually bought 177 of them. It is estimated he spent $2,900 on the meal. Day 727, January 16th. The federal shutdown entered its 26 days. It is starting to contract the United States economy. The White House was forced to revise its economic forecast downward, doubling a percentage point hit. As evidence is mounting, the shutdown is starting to stifle what had been the biggest economic expansion since 2008. Trump continues to show no signs of relenting on his wall demand, telling reporters we're going to be out for a long time. It's worth noting that Trump's demand for $5.8 billion would be one-eighth of the federal outlay for the year. Theresa May's government hangs by a thread after the English prime minister suffered an historic defeat in her Brexit deal. Losing by an unprecedented 230 votes, May's attempt to exit the European Union is in tatters. Opposition Labour tabled a vote of no confidence. It is unclear what the next steps are. The European Union acted with frustration, issuing a message that wondered if the UK, quote, had the courage to admit what is obvious. 
Attorney General nominee William Barr backtracked from his prepared statements to Congress and said Robert Mueller's report on election interference may not be made public. Barr said instead that his own summary of Mueller's findings would be released. Quote, under the current regulations, the special counsel report is confidential and that report goes public will be a report by the attorney general. I don't know at the end of the day what will be releasable. I don't know what Bob Mueller is writing. Barr, however, said directly that he would not carry out that instruction if asked to fire Mueller and added, I don't believe Mueller would be involved in a witch hunt. I believe the Russians interfered or attempted to interfere with the election, and I think we have to get to the bottom of it. Mitch McConnell blocked a House pass package to reopen the federal government for a second time in a week. Meanwhile, Trump invited Democrats to a White House lunch to discuss the wall. None showed up. Mueller is now looking at a meeting involving Devin Nunes, Michael Flynn, and dozens of foreign officials at the Trump International Hotel in Washington. Federal prosecutors in Manhattan are also looking into whether the Trump inaugural committee misspent funds and laundered money. A report in New York this week earlier detailed Trump's exorbitant inaugural costs. Steve King of Iowa was stripped of his seats in the Judiciary and Agricultural Committees. King's racist remarks in the New York Times were denounced by McConnell, who suggested that King, quote, find another line of work. An unrepentant King is refusing to resign, instead criticizing House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. Quote, Leader McCarthy's decision to remove me from committees is a political decision that ignores the truth. And Ivanka Trump will help select the next head of the World Bank. Ivanka was previously mooted as the head of the World Bank. Meanwhile, Anthony Scaramucci will be a contestant in the next series of Big Brother Celebrity Edition. 75% of Americans call the shutdown embarrassing. 65% of all voters polled want the government to reopen regardless of whether funding for a wall is granted. And Trump's approval rating hit a new low at 35%. These are the Trump Diaries. spoke with Don Evans, the founder of the Chicago Literary Hall of Fame. Evans discussed the hall's mission, its recent inductees, and how the hall is helping to preserve the Midwest's rich literary heritage. I-94, Lumpin Radio's books and literature show, airs every Sunday at 11 a.m. We have Don here today because he is the creator and founder of the Literary Hall of Fame here in Chicago. Uh, and I wanted to start off talking about this a little bit because uh, you're a sports guy, obviously, and halls of fame are big in the sports world. Not so much necessarily in the arts world. Uh, I, I don't know if Yo-Yo Ma would make the cellist hall of fame, for example, totally, or, yes. you know, uh, MC Escher makes the surrealist hall of fame or whatever. What, what motivated you to start a hall of fame uh, in Chicago to celebrate Midwestern authors? Well, my motivation was, it was somewhat accidental. I mean, it's, true of a lot of things I do. Um, I, I didn't really know what I was getting into when it first started. Um, the Chicago Writers Association, which is a great little nonprofit organization in the city, is run by Randy Richardson, who's the president now, and he was the president back in 2008 or nine. We had become friends. We um, collaborated on a book about the Cubs. He had written a, a kind of a murder mystery set in Wrigleyville. No yes. one ever gets killed in Wrigleyville, ever, <laughs> ever. No, they, they uh, sleep it off in the drunk tank uh, in the bowels of Wrigley, and then they go home. Um, so Randy asked me to be on the board. Uh, the CWA had just gotten their nonprofit status. They asked each board member to bring in a project that they thought would be good for the organization, good for Chicago, good for Chicago literature. I had been living in London for three years. My wife had taken a lateral transfer, and we had 
originally planned to go there for a year, and this was during the economic, uh, during the recession, and it didn't seem like any good reason to come home, so we stayed, and then Margaret got pregnant, and we had our son Dusty, and so one year became three years, but while we were there, I sort of organized my travels around, you know, the great literary sites of Europe. Um, Paris, uh, you know, we went to see Balzac's home and museum, uh, Dublin with Joyce and uh, Behind and the uh, Irish uh, National Museum, uh, England with Dickens and Shakespeare. So everywhere you went, there was a statue, there was a blue plaque, the homes were preserved, and I was collecting these coffee mugs. And uh, I came home. And you couldn't get any coffee mugs. I mean, other than Hemingway in Oak Park. And if you went to Galesburg, you could get a Sandberg one. Well, the English but do like their, their teacups and coffee mugs. I mean, <laughs> that's true. That, that is something that is, is very unique to the United Kingdom. Right. It was more of a symbol, though, of um, the fact that around Chicago, which is a, a, a world-class literary city, um, so many things are happening here. There are great literary organizations doing so many things f about contemporary literature. But the literary history is uh, not emphasized. And so if you go around and try to find evidence of Edna Ferber or James T. Farrell, much less Willard Motley or uh, Carolyn Rogers, uh, you can't do it. And so I brought this project into the board and I said, hey, how about this? And then, um, and here I am 10 years later and it's, um, you know, become something that I really, I was just raising my hand and saying, how about this? And then, you know, it, it got bigger and more successful and, and um, it just uh, became something that I was more and more passionate about over the years. And has a, a Hall of Fame, do you think, contributed to people knowing more about Chicago and Midwestern authors? And I say that with... Um, my eyebrows raised a little bit because something we talk about in this show quite a bit is uh, how it does seem that uh, Chicagoans love to read and, and celebrate their readers, but don't necessarily um, embrace the people from the city who actually have made the books or, or make the books today. Uh, we've had people on the show from the Chicago Review who've indicated that it's sometimes very difficult for Midwestern authors to get purchase and get attention. Um, has what you've done uh, had a positive influence in, in trying to make people aware of, of some of the people? I think so. I mean, it's a very small organization. And so when you uh, talk about impact, the impact is on a, um, a grassroots level. And I think that we do a lot of events. We do, we induct the writers. We have kind of curated this list of the great Chicago writers. Um, certainly, I'm aware of a lot of people who know about what we do, who uh, attend the events, who uh, come up to me and say, you know, I, um, you know, I wasn't aware of uh, this writer or that writer. Um, but it's, um, but it's at a, on a very small scale, I would say. Well, we were talking a little bit about this before the show, Don, um, how, how the venues changed for the induction ceremony over the past, what, seven, eight years? Right. And how the crowd size has changed just because 
the name re recognition is a little bit different. You know, in the beginning, you were we were talking Algren, uh, um, Bello, Bello, um, Lorraine, Circle, Lorraine Hansberry, yep. Richard Wright. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So we were talking like three hundred people were coming out yep. to to the inductions, and in these last couple of years, it was more like 50, 60 people because the the names aren't as big. What what are some of the challenges in getting people to pay attention to those names? Well, the or biggest, how do you do it? The biggest challenge is getting people to care. And um, I think uh, there's, a, there's a little, there's a subculture of Chicago readers and writers who, who care a lot. You know, that's what they do. They, um, they love the city. They love the city's literature. Uh, those people are not hard to convince because they're already convinced. Right. Um, we were talking about a bunch of them before the show. You know, people like uh, Bill Savage and Liesl Olson and, and, you know, Alex Kotlowitz. And these are our great writers and scholars as well as our great um, aficionados of the literature. But there are a lot of people who uh, I think are more, they're not as serious about their reading. Um, they're readers and they read a lot and, and maybe even read constantly. Um, but the way they... Um, follow trends is different than what we do. And so I think the key for us is to um, expand the base from those people who already care a lot to a lot of these people who are willing to, willing and excited to investigate their own city through the, the works of people who lived here, you know, writers who either lived here, were born here, even if they're from somewhere else, like uh, Upton Sinclair and wrote uh, seminal books about the city. Um, we talk about the jungle, of course. Was Richard Wright from here? Richard Wright was not from here. Okay. Um, he uh, was from Mississippi, um, but he he moved uh, during the Great Migra Migration to Chicago. And in fact, in his um, memoir, Black Boy, the final scene, do you know the memoir? The final scene is the scene of him on that train with all the hope and all the um, excitement that leaving his miserable circumstances in Mississippi for Chicago encompasses. And then, of course, in subsequent uh, memoirs, uh, Chicago turns out not to be what he had hoped. <laughs> Afro-Cubano hosted guest musician Mejimo Sebastian. Sebastian, in from Chile, serenaded our listeners with his modern take on Spanish classical guitar live in Studio B. Bueno, esta canción abre ese. Después de eso que tenías que hacer Afra Cosas nuevas que vas a querer hacer, tocar, sentir, romper y conocer. No es tan terrible enfrentarnos a los solos que estamos. Vamos hacia el hoyo negro que cargamos en el pecho porque lucho contra el tiempo si el dolor es un momento oh, oh. 
Produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker. Additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, and Hannah Larson. Live music production by Ari Shellis. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpen radio sting by Dan Jugal. Additional music from International Anthem Archive voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com. (laughs) 